We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, dear brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, As I mentioned at the beginning of service, um, we are in this sermon series titled, The Time in Between. This morning, specifically, we want to ask ourselves, um, what do we do while we wait? Right? Is it as simple as sitting there twiddling our thumbs, <laughs> praying for Jesus to return, or the end of our life? Right? That's really the question that we want to dig into today. Um, with that, there's a little bit of heaviness to it. Um, even as we watch these images, I think, wash across us, we get a little bit of a sense of, of um, the history of our world. And the truth is, it's not all glory and triumph, is it? Uh, um, we, we, we think through the past, which leads us to the moment here today, and it's not all achievement and beauty, right? Uh, someone once said that uh, human history um, is really just a series of wars with occasional pockets of peace, right? I think there are times when it's hard for us maybe to argue with that, right? A series of wars with occasional peace thrown in, sprinkled around. Um, I think when we think back through our history, we'd say, okay, that's probably not uh, far off of a description. Um, This is going to be our illustration in some sense of how we think through our lives chronologically um, and and kind of linearly, right? Um, if, If this is the beginning of our world, I told Eric that he got to sit under create the creation event, right? We understand um, that our lives and our world then progresses, doesn't it? And, and so if we know and God has told us how our world was created, and that was created perfect and right, and everything worked as it should. It was not a series of wars with occasional peace. It was all peace, all right, always worked, and perfection. Right? And if we know that, and Scripture tells us that, And Scripture also tells us of eternity and heaven, where all will be made right. The question we get to ask is, what do we do with this in-between time? (laughs) Right? And I think there are moments where maybe we get a little bit stuck. Right? What do we do until then? What do we do with our waiting? If that's how it started, and we heard last week, we know that's how it's going to end. What purpose does God have for us, for you, for the choices you make in the in-between? And really, that's the question we get to ask of ourselves here today. Um, Some of you have heard this illustration that I've used. If you've taken Starting Point, you've heard it. In fact, our Starting Point crew last week, I think heard it last week, um, I think oftentimes as, as Americans, North American Americans, we think of um, um, ourselves facing into the future, right? And we do our best to anticipate what's going to come. We think about that as parents. We think about that as grandparents for our kids and the generations to come. And, and we think about that within our workplaces and within our relationships. And, and we, try to, we try to look ahead and see what's coming. And if we can, if we can see problems or struggle, we try to avoid it. Try to take action, right? And I think that's a pretty common for, way for us to, and for you to view how we walk through our lives. But the truth is, 
the Israelites and the Hebrew people had kind of an interesting way to view walking through your life. And it was quite a bit different than us pretending that we can see what's actually coming around the bend. Israelites, the Hebrew people, often thought of walking into the future backwards, right? And how much can I see? I can't even see my podium. I know it's back there somewhere, right? The only thing really we can see is what comes past us. We can't peek around the corner. We don't know what joys or tragedies are to come, but we can see what has passed us and what is left behind. I think that's a beautiful way for us to not only look at our own lives, but even as we look on the pages of Scripture. We may not know everything that is to come in our lives or in the history of our world, but when we look on the pages of Scripture, we see beautiful reminders and assurances of our God. We are able to see the things that have come in order to give us confidence for what will come. And so that's what we want to look at today. As we wait, as we walk, as we progress through our lives, what assurances, what confidences, um, what struggles does our God say are going to be there? So that is where we're headed. That is what our rope this morning is going to be an example of. Um, Our progression into eternity and the questions we get to ask of what will we do with our time in the here and now. Okay? Um, we're going to have three kind of sections to our sermon this morning. Uh, if you like to fill in the blank, you can. If you don't, you don't have to. I'm not grading your bulletin at all. So some of you, it just flashed in your mind. You're like, well, could you grade it? Like some of you are real teacher's pets. You want to turn it in and go ahead and turn it in. But I'm a pretty tough grader. So no, I'm just kidding. Uh, but if you want to follow along, that's kind of where we're headed. Uh, we're going to have three main points today um, as we go through the text. But before we get there, we wanted to set the scene a little bit, the context of uh, Jesus' words to his disciples and to us here this morning. So it's from the book of Matthew. This is, this is um, a Tuesday of Holy Week. So Jesus' death on the cross is coming up very, very shortly. And so he talks to his disciples and he's giving them, I don't know if you'd call them parting words, um, but, but he's, he's kind of, he's given them a very realistic view of what life is going to, to hold. And he starts out here in verse 3, just says, As Jesus was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately. Tell us, they said, when will this happen? What will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, two things the disciples use there. Um, they want to know what the signs are. So, as, you know, we're thinking, we would like to know too, right? So they asked Jesus, what, what should we be looking for? Like, what are the signs? And then specifically of the end of the age, so that Greek word there is telus, of the completion, the finality, right? So what are the signs when everything's going to come to its completion? And I, I think we can understand the disciples' questions because, quite honestly, I think we ask the very same things, don't we? We do our best to try to interpret the signs, to anticipate what is to come, right? The disciples did the very same thing. Now, what's fascinating about this portion of of text that Jesus is teaching to his disciples is um, he he gives them words that we're going to look at, um, but there's going to be multiple fulfillments of those. We sometimes talk about prophecy being like a mountain range. Uh, Those of you that have hiked, you talk about false summits, right? Right? Um, So there will be peaks and valleys and more and more peaks. 
Um, this was going to become a reality for these disciples and for the nation of Israel in a, a pretty short time. About 70 AD, all of Jerusalem was leveled. And some of you that are history buffs maybe know this a little bit. About 70 AD, the Roman Empire, who, who uh, um, um, had conquered Israel and ruled them, finally said, enough. No more rebellion, no more pushing back, you're not paying your taxes, uh, um, I, we're done with you. And the Roman Empire was very good at squashing and putting down revolts. In about 40 short years after Jesus' death and resurrection, the Roman Empire did that in Jerusalem. This is a painting, a depiction of the siege of Jerusalem, uh, which happened in 70 A.D., um, we have, we have um, um, outside of biblical sources of historians of that day, of that siege of Jerusalem, and is absolutely brutal. We would expect nothing less from the Romans, but it was absolutely brutal, right? Murder, death, famine, uh, um, a siege of the city, and even to the point of cannibalism for those that were trapped inside. The Romans um, leveled the entire city including the temple. So when Jesus says not one stone was left on top of another, that literally came true about 40 years after his death and resurrection in Jerusalem. Right? So much so um, that, that the Romans, when they burned the temple down, which had gold inlaid all over it, um, historians tell us that when they burned it, that gold melted. That gold melted down and went into the cracks of the stones. And you want to know what the Romans did? They moved apart and cracked apart every last stone that they could and recovered all of the gold. So when Jesus says not one stone will be left upon another, that happened, right? But as he gives these words, we understand that happened in time, but it wasn't the end, right? Jesus said, you're going to see these things, but it's not the end yet. In fact, he lifts the eyes of the disciples and you and I to the end of our world as well. Okay, so let's jump into our text this morning. Uh, begin with verse 4. Jesus answered, Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. Okay? First sign, deception. Right? And this Greek word is actually kind of interesting. So I think we understand deception, right? Um, and maybe in our minds, our English thinking minds, um, it's kind of sleight of hand, right? So if magicians are, are good at deception, it's sleight of hand, right? Um, but that word is a little richer, a little fuller. It, it, it means a, a couple other things as well. So not only sleight of hand um, and um, um, kind of tricking you into something, but it also means um, leading someone astray. Right? So, uh, in a sense, taking the rope of a horse and slowly leading it down a path, um, that is incorrect. Right? So, wh when Jesus says, watch out that no one deceives you, in a sense, he's saying, watch out that you aren't led astray. Right? Um, um, the second thing that that word is kind of filled with is, deception also is saying that things are true when they are a lie. Okay? So saying something is real and right when it, in fact, is not real and it is wrong. So all of that is contained in that word. And Jesus says, you want to know a sign of the end times, 
right? You want to know what you will see in the world around you. You will see deception. You will see people being led astray. You will see people saying things are right when in fact they are wrong, claiming that they are truth when in fact they are a lie. Okay? So, first sign for us to watch for. Continue, verses 6 through 8. It says this, You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation and kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in various places. Now, this is fascinating, kind of how Jesus separates these things out, right? So he says you're going to hear, you're, you're going to, um, hear wars and rumors of wars. And that one, I think, is separated into this reality. And we probably understand it a little bit. Not only will there be times that you are a part of a war or your nation, or maybe even as a soldier, a part of that war. But you're also going to hear rumors of war. So there will be wars that are happening around the world, right? So he says, war is going to be almost omnipresent. Maybe not necessarily in your specific country, but it will be happening all the time, right? So wars and rumors of wars. He talks about nations will rise against nations and kingdoms against kingdoms. The word for nation there is ethnos. The word for kingdom is basileus, okay? Um, so these are separated just a little bit. So what he's saying is, is that um, um, ethnic groups, people that consider themselves part of a group, will rise up and suppress and, and attack other ethnic groups, okay? So uh, um, groups of people, because of their uh, regional or ethnic or, or color of their skin, will fight other ethnic groups, but also fossilized kingdoms, political powers, nations, superpowers will fight against other nations and political powers. Right? So Jesus is saying not only uh, um, will you see that people are going to subject one another based on their ethnic uh, roots or where they grew up or, or maybe the color of their skin or the language that they speak, but also political powers are going to war against one another. Nations are going to battle, right, to expand their reach, maybe by a mile at a time, right? But this is going to happen. And lastly, famines, earthquakes, natural disasters. So Jesus is saying, you want to see signs of the end, you're going to see deception. You're also going to see war, hear rumors of war, nations rising against nations, famine and earthquakes. The world around you will feel as though it is grinding to a literal halt, right? Signs, okay? Let's go on. Verses 9 through 11. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and put to death, and you will be hated by all nations because of me. At that time, many will turn away from the faith and will betray and hate each other, and many false prophets will appear and deceive many. So if Jesus starts out, his first sign is that deception. Then he moves almost into the, kind of just the world around us, right? Um, nations and kingdoms fighting and wars. In this case, he makes it even more specific. So not only will we see those signs outside, but guess what? We will see those signs within us and specifically targeting us, right? 
you'll be handed over to be persecuted. That word persecuted is actually, I like the, it's a little more old-timey word, King James Version, tribulation, right? You'll be handed over for tribulations, suffering, right? Being pressed down, right? Um, And not because of just living in this world, but because of your faith in Jesus, right? In fact, you will be put to death. And this is interesting. Jesus says you'll be hated by all nations. So you remember the ethnos and basileus that he gave us in the last sign? Now look what happens to us as believers in Christ. We'll be handed over. That's a political system, isn't it? You will be tried. You'll be put up on trial, right? Uh, um, Nations and the rule of law will at times put us on trial, right? And nations will hate you, right? Not because of anything other than us being followers of Christ, okay? We're talking about signs, right? Signs. Okay, one more. Last one, verse 12. Because of the increase of wickedness, the love of most will grow cold. And um, if all of these signs already to this point weren't or aren't uh, to some degree alarming, um, this is maybe the most frightening one. It's a small kind of tag on at the end. But the increase of wickedness will result in the love of most growing cold. You've maybe heard this phrase before, the opposite of Uh, of love is not actually hatred, it's apathy, right? It's simply walking away. And what does Jesus say will happen in the end? Most people's love will just grow cold. They won't fight, they won't get angry, they won't yell or holler. They'll just walk away, right? So have you seen these signs? You're probably thinking, this is not a real optimistic sermon so far, Pastor. (laughs) Maybe not optimistic yet, but it is realistic, isn't it? Because all of the things that Jesus says will be evident in the end times, um, as you live your life, those are here, aren't they? And it's not very hard, I think, for us uh, uh, to look around our world and see all of these things actively in place. But here's maybe the more frightening part or the more convicting part. Quite often, we're a part of it, aren't we? How often are we not the ones that are being uh, um, um, sinned against or subject to, but far too often we as believers maybe are a part of those exact things. The roles that we play, right, as we deceive, as we use power plays in our workplaces, in our families, in our relationships to manipulate, right? Uh, the, the, the times that we allow uh, the centering effect of Scripture to be, to be moved to the side for the sake of convenience and being culturally relative, right? And at times where we as Christians... Allow our love to just go cold. I heard that Jesus stuff once. Hmm. Right? Where our love goes cold. Um, Not just for the people in the world around us, but at times even in danger of growing cold for our Lord and Savior above. So I think when Jesus says these are the signs, it's very easy for us to see them out there. And we feel the weight 
and the pressure uh, and the, all of that upon our shoulders, but the truth is far too often maybe we're a part of it. Okay. So then what hope do we have? Well, our text doesn't stop there. Uh, our first fill in the blank, if you are following along, see the signs. Veterans Day, uh, if some of you knew this, um, um, originated with um, Armistice Day, which was the end of World War I uh, in 1918. So maybe some of you don't know the history of that a little bit, but um, started out as Armistice Day, ultimately became Veterans Day, which we celebrated this weekend. Um, but there's a real fascinating thing that happened when they, they ceased war in World War I, right? World War I, which, which took millions and millions of lives, um, um, Armistice Day was officially, um, they said, ended on 11-11-11, okay? So November 11th at 11 a.m., okay, was when the war was supposed to be done. But do you want to know when they actually signed the peace treaty? 5 a.m. But somebody in the PR room said, ah, 11, 11, 11, sounds a lot, it's got a lot better ring to it, right? This is, this is true. They signed the end of World War I at 5 a.m., but the news didn't get out and they didn't tell anybody till about 11 a.m. The, the war was finished, but there were still battles that were being fought. 3,000 men died between 5 a.m. and 11. The last one, his name was Henry Gunther. He died at 10.59 a.m. There's conflicting reports as to exactly why uh, he was still fighting. Um, the news didn't get to him in time. Maybe his commander didn't convey the news that the war was over. You don't need to fight any longer. Some have said that he was trying to redeem himself, maybe get a promotion. He kept fighting those battles even though the war was done. I think we understand that on some level as Christians in this time of waiting. As we feel the battles that are being fought. But here's the really beautiful thing about this. The war, it's already been won. John 19, verse 30. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Remember at the beginning what the disciples asked for? They wanted signs about the end. They used that Greek word, tell us. We want signs about the end. Well, guess what? In Christ, in three days, they would get both. And you have both as well, right? That word tell us, signs of the end, it's the same one that Jesus uttered on the cross on your behalf as he paid the price that our sins created. As he gave his life so that you would know that you are forgiven, that you are loved, so that you would know without a shadow of a doubt that the war has been won because of Jesus and his sacrifice for you. So if the disciples wanted to know what the end was, it was Jesus. <laughs> If the disciples wanted to know when things would be complete and final and forever, it was Jesus. And it is the same for you and I. 
His sacrifice was final and complete and full. There's nothing we need add to it or take away from it. He gave his life, his perfection for you so that you would know your sins are washed absolutely clean. And if we wanted a sign, there was one there. It said, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, posted above his head. If those disciples wanted signs of the end, they need look no further than their Lord and Savior as he hung on that cross. And brothers and sisters, that's the same thing you have. Jesus' death and resurrection were forever and final and complete. And it means that there is absolutely no doubt that your destination is eternity because of what he has done for us, for you on the cross. When we talk about, when we think about the progression of this timeline, right? At the center of it all, always has been and always will be the blood of your Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And we may be on this side looking back, but the assurance of heaven is because of him. And there may be those believers that came before us as they looked forward to the fulfillment of the Messiah and the promise, but it was as good as done because God himself had made that promise. Within three days of our text, the disciples would see Jesus go to that cross and fulfill all of prophecy and history and assure you and I that our destination is heaven. Not because of who we are, what we've done, um, because we have been so brave and so glorious, but because of Jesus' death on the cross. The disciples, the Jews, maybe you and I, we want signs this is it, your Lord and Savior, right? The finality that your sins are forgiven, okay? Our next fill in the blank. Forgiveness is finished, right? Complete and final in Christ, okay? With that knowledge, what do we do? Last few verse, verses of our text give us some idea. Verse 13 and 14. Jesus says, But the one who stands firm to the end will be saved, and this gospel of the kingdom will be preached in the whole world as testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. And so Jesus gives us a couple beautiful, powerful things that we can do while we wait. Where are you on the timeline? I don't know. Where do, where do you think we're at? Is this 2,000 years? right? A sliver, right? Um, the question we get to ask of ourselves as we wait, as we look forward to eternity with our Lord and Savior, what can we do? How can we act? How do we give God glory? Jesus tells us, he says two things, stand firm and share the gospel. Gospel means the good news that Jesus Christ has died and risen again. Stand firm and share the gospel. Simple, right? But a little bit hard to think through as well, isn't it? Because what does that look like in your life, in our lives as believers? What is standing firm and sharing the gospel? How does that exactly play out in the world and the life and the, the country that we are in? In our sliver of this timeline, how does standing firm and sharing the gospel, what does it look like? The truth is, I don't have a direct answer for you. It's going to look as varied as each of you are. 
But we have some pretty good examples throughout Scripture and throughout history of what standing firm in the message of the gospel can look like. Joseph, uh, thrown in a pit, sold into slavery, God ultimately uses him not only for the physical salvation of his brothers and the forgiveness that he offered them, but actually uh, feeding the entire nation of Egypt and the surrounding areas. So as Joseph stood firm and shared the gospel, this is what it looked like. He used the gifts God gave him for the good of the world in which he lived, for the good of his brothers, and ultimately the forgiveness that he offered and he showed them. How about Daniel? We had a sermon on him not too long ago. Uprooted from his home country, forced into slavery and to serve not one but two world powers, unbelieving world powers, and yet was above reproach used the gifts God had given him, not only to God's glory, but also to the benefit of the nation in which he lived. And as he got old, and they threatened to kill him by lions, he stood firm and he prayed. Same thing he had done the entire rest of his life. Right? Queen Esther, right? chosen not because of of character or, or any of those things, but simply um, chosen because of the things that the world oftentimes values, which was her good looks, right? Plucked out of obscurity in, on some level. Access into the kingdom and into a place of power. And how did she stand firm and share the gospel? At some point, she stood in between the king and his death sentence and her people and asked him to spare them. And God used Esther to do that very same thing. Right? How about the Apostle Paul from our first reading today? Paul said this, The night is nearly over. The day is almost here. Let us put aside deeds of darkness and put on the armor of light. The Apostle Paul, who uh, was a Pharisee and a bounty hunter, but also a Greek citizen. He used that citizenship in order to continue sharing the gospel and standing firm in Christ. All four of these, right? Unlikely situations, unlikely people that God chose to use for the advancement of his gospel and for saving souls. And they are not such great people because of necessarily the tasks they did, but because in the things they did, they consistently and constantly not only stood firm, but pointed to the promise of a Savior and to Jesus Christ. And the work they did saved people, saved us. The message they shared has changed hearts until this very day here today. They stood firm, they shared the gospel. And it's not always going to be easy. Middle Ages, 1400s, a man named Martin Luther said this. To this day it happens that when tyrants rage against the gospel, they do no more than blow into the ashes. Then the fire becomes greater and the ashes fly into their eyes. This is the success which their tyranny is to meet. 
When they shed innocent blood, the blood of Christians is to act as a fertilizer on the field, making it rich and productive. For through persecution, Christendom grows. It always has. Probably always will. Right? And yet, he stood firm. He shared the gospel. One more. A man named C.S. Lewis, some of you know him, lived through World War II. Uh, the finality of World War II ended with and began what we would call the Atomic Age. He wrote a very small letter, about five pages long, um, addressing some concerns about what it would mean to live in an atomic age, right? The dangers that were inherent there. C.S. Lewis said this, In one way, we think a great deal too much of the atomic bomb. How are we to live in an atomic age? I'm tempted to reply, why as you would have lived in the 16th century when the plague visited London almost every year? Or as you would have lived in a Viking age when raiders from Scandinavia might land and cut your throat any night? Or indeed, as you are already living in an age of cancer, an age of syphilis, an age of paralysis, an age of air raids, an age of railway accidents, an age of motor accidents. In other words, do not let us begin by exaggerating the novelty of our situation. Believe me, dear sir or madame, you and all whom you love were already sentenced to death before the atomic bomb was invented, and quite a high percentage of us were going to die in unpleasant ways. We had indeed one very great advantage over our ancestors, anesthetics, but we have that still. It is perfectly ridiculous to go about whimpering and drawing long faces because the scientists have added one more chance of painful and premature death to a world which already bristled with such chances and in which death itself was not a chance at all, but a certainty. This is the first point to be made and the first action to be taken is to pull ourselves together. If we are all going to be destroyed by an atomic bomb, let that bomb, when it comes, find us doing sensible and human things. Praying, working, teaching, reading, listening to music, bathing the children, playing tennis, chatting to our friends over a pint and a game of darts. Not huddled together like frightened sheep and thinking about bombs. They may break our bodies, a microbe can do that, but they need not dominate our minds. And so how do we stand firm and share the gospel message? A myriad of ways. And it'll show itself in each and every one of your lives and God will use your standing firm and your sharing of that gospel message to advance the gospel all the way until eternity. I don't know what our little slice is going to look like, filled with all kinds of joys or tragedies, Both, I would say. But we do know where we're headed. And it's because of Christ as our Lord and Savior. If you noticed in this rope, there's a gold yarn thread all the way through it. You're welcome to look at it after the service today. Um, That's kind of historically been known as what they call a rogue's yarn. Uh, So back when ropes were very, very expensive and the best ropes that you could ever get were uh, were made by the Navy and used for sailing ships, especially 17, 1800s, what entrepreneurial people would do is steal ropes. 
How did you guard against that? Oftentimes, you would weave a singular colored thread through your rope. And so if you saw someone using a rope that had your color thread, or the thread color of the navy, you instantly knew it was a good rope, but you probably also knew it was stolen, right? This one happens to have a gold one running all the way through it. But I think it can serve as a final reminder for us as we live in these end times. The history of humankind may be predominantly wars with pockets of peace, but what runs through it all is that singular thread of our Lord above. His providence, His guidance, and that He's going to walk with us. After Jesus' death and resurrection, He said this to His disciples, and He says it to you and I as well. I'm with you always to the very end of the age. We have some sense of where it started. We don't know when the end is coming. Maybe this afternoon. We won't have to watch the Broncos play later on. Right? But there are some things that we know without a shadow of a doubt. You know that the war is over because of Jesus' sacrifice for you on the cross. And you know that your God and Christ himself walks with you through it all. May the Lord bless you as you stand firm and you share the gospel message that sins are forgiven. Amen.